0: Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 82 of the podcast, the topic is the future of grid energy innovation. Our guest is John Wellinghoff, CEO of Grid Policy and former chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. Now a quick word from... One of our partners, CleanTech.org, is a leading virtual research institute and incubator to the clean tech sector, with an online membership base of over forty-five thousand. Subscribe to the site to learn more about clean tech and meet scientists and entrepreneurs to commercialize your ideas. Contact info at CleanTech.org. That's CleanTech.org. In this conversation, we talk about the transdisciplinary mindset needed to understand energy innovation, and we discuss the policy regulation impasse. We also talk about the downside of monopolistic utilities at the distribution, transmission, and generation levels. We discuss sustainable energy systems, distributed energy resource systems, and all the disruptive forces, particularly the policy barriers and opportunities. We cover the regulatory tools available in the U.S. and abroad. We discuss the Texas case of free utility competition. We discuss exciting startups in the space, including smart wires and whisker labs, and the impact of innovation on the policy mix and outcome. Lastly, we discuss the next decade. John, how are you today? I'm doing well, Trond. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So I thought we would chat a little bit about the future of, of, of grid uh, and grids. And that's a super exciting uh, question that I know you have been uh, looking into for a, for a good while. You know, being an expert and a thought leader on energy policy, uh, John, and having served as uh, the chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, and on a bunch of other things, including, uh, I know you have a J.D., and uh, right. but you are a mathematician of, of, of background, so we'll we'll get into a little bit how that relates to energy policy. Give me a sense of how this, uh, you know, how did you travel from mathematics all the way into you know deep policy making in into grids, and, and and then eventually, what are you doing now?
1: Yeah, it was a long journey. Uh, yeah, I, I did start out in mathematics. Actually, I actually I started out as a physics major initially. And um, ended up taking all the physics courses that an engineering um, major needs to take. So I have all that that physics and engineering background, which is very helpful for what I do now. But uh, kind of got tired of working in the lab, to tell you the truth. And I switched my major to math, which which always in- interested me, and all, and also obviously has, you know, a deep relationship to physics and and engineering. Um, but but mathematics um, is one of those kind of difficult things to actually make a living at. So you know I started out teaching mathematics and and soon discovered that teaching is one of the hardest jobs in the world and and, and sometimes uh, not as rewarding as it should be although you should be rewarded by by the growth you see in your students and I was rewarded in that but but um, decided to move on to, to the law because I felt that um, there was a connection between mathematics and the law in the sense that uh, you're really trying to uh, make logical arguments and you're trying to advance positions but those positions can only be advanced if you have a foundation upon which to advance them, the evidence and the support to do so and and all that really has uh, a mathematical uh, underpinning to it, so so went from there, um, uh, a, a, teaching math to actually being um, an attorney, and and, um, and and again gravitated as an attorney into the technical area, and the most technical area, uh, probably one of the most technical areas you can get into uh, in the law is is energy law, and so that's really um, is how I started out, is having that really love for technology and mathematics, but combining that with my uh, legal and policy interests and, uh, and it kind of, kind of went off from there started out with a state public utilities commission in Nevada uh, back <laughs> much longer than I want to admit back in the, in the um, early mid seventies, which was um, just on the tail of the Arab oil embargo. And, <clears throat> As a result was a period of time in utility energy law where we were doing in the 18 months that I was with the State Public Utilities Commission in Nevada, we did more utility rate cases than they had done in the previous 10 years. Because that's how fast prices were changing, costs and expenses were changing for utilities, that uh, it was a very compressed period That uh, we saw this very uh, significant change. And as a result, I got an unbelievable amount of experience in that very short period of
0: time. So, John, we are talking here about kind of the future of grid policy and of innovating in the energy space more generally in this time of, of energy transition. What would you say is kind of the standard? Repertoire of skills and, and, and concepts really that we need to keep in mind as we're sort of just uh, talking about this. I know that you're kind of passionate about, and I think we're both, uh, this transdisciplinary mindset needed. And you've talked about your math background, but policy and law, those are sort of typically three separate, you know, they're, they're three separate types of competencies. And then let's not even then start bringing in kind of engineering and other and there is other skills. What, you know, in order to really operate efficiently, whether you, and you know, we'll get into startups and other things, whether you're a policymaker or trying to start a company in the future of energy games somewhere, what are the basic things you need to keep in mind here? And what are the skills required? I mean, you have had, you know, this path that has been enriched by, uh, you know, these job experiences where you've had honed your skills. But what is, you know, the core set? of things to keep in mind when we're talking about this period of energy transition. There's a consumer trend. There's a lot of things that one should be you know, up to date on. It's, it seems to me like a very hard aspect to innovate in.
1: Well, uh, I'll tell you what, one core principle that has guided me through my entire career, starting at the very beginning, uh, out of the box uh, as a young attorney working with the State Commission and moving through all my other um, career um, modifications, I won't say changes, but modifications and transformations that I did was uh, the principle of efficiency. Uh, Both efficiency physically from a physics perspective, how can you um, make the system more efficient uh, engineering wise, but also from a policy and legal perspective, how can you make that system operate more efficiently? If you can can reduce the overall um, complexity of the system, you can make the system operate in a much more efficient way, you can ultimately then reduce costs, you can uh, improve services, and you can provide uh, those services at the lowest possible cost, Uh, to consumers. So, you know, all of that is um, evolved out of that one principle of efficiency. And then beyond efficiency, I mean, you have to look at, you know, what are your other uh, external uh, critical factors? And of course, we've come to find out in the last uh, 20 or so years, and actually it's been known for more than 20 years, more than 30 years, that that the increasing um, production of carbon through the burning of fossil fuels is a um, critical factor to our continued survival. So, you know, you, you have to look at, you know, what, what are your, <laughs> your, your major issues that you're trying to address and focus on? So the way I see the focus now is, you know, efficiency and carbon reduction. And if you can combine those two principles together as an overall focus, then, you know, many things fall out of that. And the other part of it is, you know, from a, an operating standpoint, you know, is, is trying not to get lost in the details. I mean, there's there are so many complexities to the grid system, how it operates both at a local distribution level and at a more, Um, uh, higher um, transmission wholesale level that um, the complexities can often uh, bring people into a a whirlpool of um, discussion that loses sight of those bigger picture issues of efficiency and carbon reduction. So, again, you have to continually, as you're – Involved in these policy and um, uh, legal debates, remember what your overall objectives are and pull yourself back constantly to those objectives to recheck your focus in your direction to ensure, ensure that your focus and direction is moving in the direction that you intend to and that you're not getting sidetracked into some uh, you know, parochial or um debate or battle that's going to just distract you from your overall
0: uh, goals. So John, we are going to get into some of the nitty gritty, but you know, in terms of that, uh, you know, following the thrust that you're setting up now, I know you're very uh, passionate about distributed energy resources and and those systems. Let me ask a very basic question. It seems so obvious to kind of a somewhat of an outsider, although I guess I have studied this too much to really claim to be fully an outsider. But anyway, this whole idea of consumer-based energy markets and then that the consumer should have some idea about what's going on or, you know, of, of the prices or what they're actually paying for, or or even, you know, uh, what is, so what is the origin of that argument? And to what extent are we now beginning to actually see it happen? And, and what is it sort of, what is the, I think you, the, the terminology is DER, Distributed Energy Resource Systems. Right. What, what is that whole thing all about?
1: Well, I think the origin of that argument really comes down to sort of individual freedom and individual choice. Um, certainly, there are the vast majority of consumers who care only about the fact that, uh, as, as we often say, they can flip on the light switch and they don't care what's behind that light switch um, and what is operating in the background, all the, all the complexities that make that happen that actually provide them that's that service in their home or business of lighting uh, or any other electrical services being provided. Uh, but on the other hand, I think there is a fundamental desire on the part of consumers to have control and to have choice and to have um, freedom of choice. And I think that is the origin of distributed energy resources. I actually did a a legal paper um, that was published in uh, the Energy Law Journal uh, in conjunction with a professor out of the University of California, Berkeley called The Right to Self-Generate, which basically um, established from a legal perspective, um, both in common law and in various Uh, statutory and regulatory provisions in the U.S. that we believe there is a right for people to use their own property in the way that they wanted to use it, which included their generating their own electricity, whether it be putting solar panels on the roof or having a a small, um, you know, gas generated uh, gas generator natural gas generator on their property or some other device, as long as they uh, complied with all the um, state and local health and safety requirements, you know, and all those other, and, you know, requirements with respect to, you know, noise abatement, et cetera, uh, for, you know, generators. Uh, But beyond that, we believe that people had that right to, to, to actually do that,
0: and, and, I'm shocked and, that you had to make that argument in well, America. But I've learned well, so much about America over the last <laughs> decade that it's incredible. But but you <laughs> had to write that paper, did you? Because it yes, wasn't yes. obvious. No, it
1: wasn't obvious. I mean, it, it, and, and we went through it. I mean, it seemed like there was a basic right in common law to use your own property. But but there are, um, you know, jurisdictions in this country where uh, monopoly distribution retail uh, electric providers would maintain that they have a complete right to tell you whether or not you can uh, generate electricity and it, and, it, and it was it evolved out of a lot of work I did on on solar net metering for a uh, rooftop solar um, and a lot in, in a lot of jurisdictions uh, there is an effort on the part of these monopoly utilities to uh, claim that if you put rooftop solar on your roof, they have a, a right to charge you for that. They have a right to actually charge you more in your electric bill if you have a have a rooftop solar system on your house, which is actually sort of an absurd argument. But but nevertheless, you know, that argument's being made to a number of state utility commissions. So we had to sort of push back and say, well, no, we sh- you shouldn't have a right to charge us. In fact, we should have a right to self-generate and generate that electricity in the excess generation. We should be able to, to expect a fair compensation. For any excess generation, we put back onto your lines uh, in the system, and that was, you know, sort of the the, uh, the balance that we were trying to achieve uh, between what we were seeing is a lot of pushback from local utilities saying, no, 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 consumer, uh, let us do it. We know how to do it better. We don't want you to, you know, worry your your pretty little head about this. Uh, we we want to be your complete provider of energy services and you shouldn't have anything to worry about. A lot of people don't want to worry about it and that's fine. And they should have the right also from a choice standpoint to go out and choose who provides them electric services. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean it should be dictated to them and it shouldn't be required of them to take services from any particular entity that they as consumers should be able to make those choices. And that's I so, think where where this whole idea of these distributed resources
0: derives from, from that fund fundamentally clear. Right. Yeah, I get it. That's clear. So I wanted to now look at sort of where we are from this perspective of, and we have started talking about these disruptive forces. And the shocking thing, I guess, well, not so shocking to you for sure, is that, you know, he, this is an area where private industry has been, uh, you know, obviously, some of the energy markets are deregulated, but the, but the players have operated so long in their respective fields that they have taken on almost like a, a government or a paternalistic role, you know, these utilities, some of them. But if we think about these other disruptive forces here, so, you know, technology being one of them, uh, the policy and regulatory domain being another, which, you know, you are uh, very steeped in. Uh, but then new business models coming from obviously also big bigger energy companies and and IT companies and and certainly also startups from various angles and then lastly kind of social dynamics which is this consumer angle so it's almost a perfect area of complexity right energy just plays with all these four and and then there's a fifth factor that has become important to all of us right sustainability and energy you know and and uh uh, the environment, which you know, obviously as a sub-factor here in in the field of energy, that's kind of why we bother really with with this field. If you were to look at any of those sort of four and five, four to five uh, factors right now, not even thinking about the future, what is the biggest barrier and what is the biggest opportunity in order to uh, make progress for energy innovation? Is it? Is, is the technology the opportunity or is it sort of the barrier we're waiting for? Is it is it the regulatory uh, domain or is it the utilities holding back? Or is it people kind of not realizing what powers they actually have in common law or, or, or even just not being interested enough to care uh, that they let this sort of go on?
1: Well, I think certainly technology is the opportunity and we've seen that. Um, demonstrate itself uh, over and over again I mean you can look at you know uh, sol- solar pV solar photovoltaic cells and you know the cost of uh, solar pV you know not that long ago if you look back you know 15 20 years ago was was ten dollars a watt uh, and you now can can buy uh, pV for you know 50 cents a watt so you know the the prices come down. Uh, the efficiency levels have gone up. You had, you know, solar panels that were at, you know, eight to ten percent efficiency. Uh, I just read about uh, some new uh, lower cost technologies that use both silicon and a and another uh, another lower cost material combined together that look like they can uh, put panels together at thirty percent efficiencies. So you know, a tripling of efficiency. You know, a you know multiple multiple thousand percent reduction in, in the price per per unit um, of output um, so technology and again and that's being replicated in batteries right now uh, and I'm reading about all kinds of potential um, exciting breakthroughs in lithium technology and in other uh, non lithium technologies so I think we're going to see batteries so the whole area of technology is an, is a very Um, significant and exciting promise uh, that's going to, I think, continue uh, on out into the future. Uh, The the barrier area, and that's why I think I've focused on it so much, the barrier area is policy. It is policy and the uh, institutional structures that we put in place, historical structures, to deliver these services. The historical structure that we put in place to deliver electric service was in the 1930s, you know, there was ultimately an agreement um, to allow for monopoly franchises for utilities to have for-profit corporations to have a monopoly to deliver a service, and that monopoly would be granted under the authority of state um, uh, state legal jurisdiction uh, to you know entities, single entities, to provide these services, and that was a, a construct that was. Um, served its time, because we had a country where you needed to expand uh, the delivery of services rapidly over some uh, very wide-ranging territory, especially in rural areas, uh, and we needed to have um, electric energy served to as many people as quickly as possible. So you needed to encourage investment, and you needed to provide people a uh, a shared return on investment, uh, which those... Uh, monopoly companies were provided a relatively assured return on that investment. And as, as a result, they did a good job in building out the electric system in this country, but that time is over. And um, we're now in a time of innovation, but we're also in a time of, of crisis and challenge. And that is decarbonization and um, improving the efficiency of the systems and lowering costs. And uh, those three objectives Lowering costs, improving efficiency, and, and then meeting our environmental and, uh, and, and global uh, climate goals uh, are not well served by a monopoly structure. So we need to change the policies uh, um, as rapidly as we can to a more competitive structure, to one that's more consumer oriented, the, the, the one that's hopefully more, more uh, distribution oriented as well. Uh, to distributed resources, and uh, in, in doing so, um, accelerate uh, this change, because we need to accelerate the change if we're going to meet our climate goals.
0: We're going to get to startups in a second, but uh, one case that seems to, to have done some things right, uh, surprisingly to many, is the state of Texas. Why is Texas a poster child for some type of flexibility, which has allowed, uh, you know, a certain type of innovation in the energy space explain the case of Texas for us.
1: You you must've just read my mug.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
1: Texas is a very unique place. I mean, they're very, you know, individualistic, um, um, and independent, uh, freedom, freedom loving, uh, state that, um. Um, In fact, is not under the jurisdiction of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission because they've never strongly interconnected their interstate transmission into the rest of the United States system. So as such, their transmission is not considered interstate transmission and as such is not under the jurisdiction of the Federal Power Act and and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission.
0: because that must have frustrated it. you at some point when you were in well, charge. Well, of
1: it. well, there were some frustrations, but I, but I I, I actually uh, appreciate and uh, am somewhat jealous of Texas's model because Texas is almost you know like um, uh, an I because they're in sort of an island unto themselves. They can do things much more rapidly, uh, much more efficiently, um, and have a lot less um, controversy and. Um, and competing um, pushback when they when they want to do something. For example, you know Texas was very successful in developing their renewable resources. Uh, George W. Bush um, was governor of Texas. He was very interested in developing wind resources. He got uh, one of the um, um, people who is his chief regulator there in the uh, Texas Commission, Pat Wood, to uh, figure out how to move forward with um, accelerating renewable development. They put in place one of the first renewable portfolio standards in the United States, uh, requiring that a certain percentage of the energy delivered to Texans come from uh, renewable resources. And so, as a result, they have a wide range of renewable resources. Plus at the same time, they also put in place a retail, um, service delivery structure that provides for full competition. So there are dozens of retail providers in Texas, in, in most of Texas where, um, any consumer can choose and they have websites where you can go, you know, uh, shop and, and make, uh, Uh, comparison decisions between multiple providers that have you have that provide to you all kinds of different plans that you can choose among uh, to have your energy electric energy delivered to your home or business. Um, But on the renewable side they also were able to develop and build out an infrastructure fairly rapidly. They put in place what was called CREZ which was um, renewable energy zones I'm not sure what, I forget what the C stand for, but in any case, um, those zones were set forth in um, West Texas and they developed corridors into the um, mid and eastern part of Texas where the load centers are that then put together a competitive bidding process to bid for the development of transmission, uh, a whole uh, transmission infrastructure that could deliver large amounts of uh, new wind development from West Texas into the load centers in Central and Eastern Texas. And so, uh, you know, Texas has one of the largest um, wind resources uh, in the world, uh, and they've been extremely successful in developing that and accelerating that development, and right now get probably more of their, their electric energy from wind than, than most most places in, in the world, and certainly the United States. Hmm.
0: On the startup side, uh, there are some startups that are starting to make uh, a bit of a dent. Can you explain to us uh, just a, a couple of startups that you are impressed with when it comes to either making sense of these new consumer opportunities or even on, on more fundamental issues of, of the grid that are making some, some headway? I, I know that Smart, Smart Wire being being one of them. Give us a sense of what you think makes a difference, because you know not every startup is going to transform the energy system or the grid, but there are some startups out there right now that are making a starting to make a dent. Which ones would you highlight?
1: Yeah, there are. And you know it's interesting you say startups because I mean they're they're startups in the sense that they're not, you know fully um, adopted mainstream technologies like, say, solar photovoltaics or uh, wind turbines, you know, those were those were startups, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, they're fully adopted technologies. These are technologies that um, are fully mature. They're fully commercialized technologies, but primarily for policy reasons, uh, I would say not from a standpoint of of uh, problems with the technology or their application um, that they have not gotten to be fully adopted uh, into the mainstream grid. Uh, Smartwires that you mentioned is one of them. And when you say startup, I mean, Smartwires has been uh, operating as a company for over 10 years.
0: Um, Borderline, whether you can call them startup, but this market is that...
1: Well, it is strange because I mean, and, and and Smartwires is still a startup in the United States in the sense that you know their their technology has not been fully embraced and adopted in um, the um, high voltage transmission system in the U.S., but is starting to be um, a a fully adopted technology in Europe and in the U.K. and in Australia. And it's primarily because, again, not because the technology that they sell over there is any different than the technology they sell over here. The difference is the policy and financial structures that we have here to reward developers of transmission are different than those in Europe, in the UK, and Australia. Europe, UK, and the Australia, they provide specific rewards for people uh, developers of transmission who make that transmission more efficient. So if you can demonstrate that you're improving the, tr- the efficiency of the transmission system by improving throughput, uh, reducing congestion, etc., you're going to be rewarded. Your shareholders are going to make more money here. That's not the case. Your shareholders make no, no more money. Uh, you only make more money by investing more. So the more you invest, whether or not it's more efficient in its, uh, ultimate uh, throughput and and efficiency of the overall system, you still get to make more money. So there's no incentive here to ultimately have people uh, be the most efficient uh, transmission system uh, they can. But smart wires is a technology that's very interesting. They're a, um, a digital technology that attaches to a transmission system, um, either uh, in a mobile trailer under the system or on a transmission tower, that actually can provide uh, a dynamic flow gate in a transmission system anywhere you place it in the system. So what it can do is it can change the flows. It can increase or decrease the flow at a particular point. It's a valve, in essence, that you can put in that transmission system that uh, up to the development of this technology, you had to put in very high high-cost, sophisticated systems into a substation uh, to, to make those kinds of changes. With this technology, it's much more low-cost, like a tenth of the cost of what you would put into these large substation um, technologies, and you can put it anywhere along the transmission line. So it's very mobile, it's very flexible, uh, very dynamic, and it is, also, it is all, also literally dynamic in that you can Um, change it, uh, change the level of flow, uh, you know, on a minute-to-minute basis if you want to. So because of this, it allows you to um, put in more um, renewable energy into the system because you can imagine flows are changing all the time with variable wind uh, systems, uh, variable uh, solar systems, and as a result, if you can tune the flows, uh, on the system to the variability of that renewable resource, you can make sure that more of that resource gets through uh, into the system and delivered to consumers at the end. So v- very you know highly accretive to um, allowing uh, renewable systems to get the maximum amount out of their system overall. It's also, aside from renewables, can just lower costs for consumers because you can put in these technologies as alternatives to building new transmission lines. You can make the existing lines do much more with the existing capacity you have rather than adding new, uh, complete new capacity on top of it. Uh, You can simply put in these technologies along the line and uh, get much more out of the capacity that's already there. So, you know, that's one company. There's, you know, a number of others that I could go into. Uh, I've got one at the consumer level that's extremely interesting, Uh, called, uh, it's uh, the company's called Whisker Labs. The technology they have is called a TING, T-I-N-G. And what that technology does, it actually is like a little um, plug-in into uh, an outlet anywhere in your house. So it looks like a little CO2 sensor that you would plug in, a little white box. And you plug it in anywhere in your house and it senses the voltage in your house 30,000 times a second. And by sensing that voltage, it then delivers that information back to the um, um, network operation center of Whisker Labs that reviews this and they get gigabytes of data a day, reviews this information and looks for little changes going on inside the wiring in your house. And as a result, it can tell if you've got um, a plug that the wire is starting to come loose or you've got somebody who just uh, repaired your dryer and didn't put the uh, connections back on correctly that might cause a spark and they can tell if something's gonna happen ultimately that could cause a fire in your house and then what they do is in essence send somebody uh, an electrician to the house who then can go in and determine uh, the issue and fix it. Well, the interesting thing like about
0: smarter, the- smart meter, right? Because well, it's, well, it's, a- it's,
1: it's like it's, it's a smart meter on steroids, right. because what it what it can do is it not only monitors what's going on in the house, but when you start putting multiple of these things in the neighborhood your whole house wiring then starts to act like an antenna and it starts monitoring the wires outside the house. It can actually then tell whether or not your transformer up on the pole outside your house that's owned by the utility company has a loose neutral wire that's coming off, but of that's causing your voltage to fluctuate in your house. You know, when you see your lights flickering on and off and sometimes you can't tell what's going on. And sometimes you think, well, do I have something wrong with my house in, inside my house. Well, Oftentimes it's not. Oftentimes it's a utility company outside, and they don't know, and you don't know, and you know they point their finger at you, and you point their finger at, at them. Well, this device can tell where it's at. This device can tell. No, no, it's up on that pole because three of your neighbors are seeing the same thing, and so as a result, it the utility needs to come out and fix something. They can tell if there's you know uh, too many bird droppings on a insulator on a high-voltage transmission line a mile and a half away. It's causing arcing over that, that transmission um, wire on that pole. So this is a very, very um, sophisticated um, prescriptive technology that is going to, I think, I believe, be used. And this is a very – this is a startup. It's only like a three-year-old company. Um, it's starting to be rolled out now in the tens of thousands by the insurance companies, the insurance companies are actually paying for these things to go in and it's gonna start being rolled out in the hundreds of thousands and ultimately millions across the country and being put in by those insurance companies because they're doing it to prevent house fires. So they won't have to pay for, you know, fires caused by wiring in the houses. But once this stuff gets rolled out in larger numbers, as we start seeing all these utility issues, the utility companies are going to want this data. And they're going to need this data because it will be better data than they will have from their smart meters. It will be more sophisticated data that will tell them more about their utility system than they know now. And they will ever know without this kind of Uh, technology in place, really exciting technology.
0: So, John, you seem well positioned to answer this question, but these two startups were a teaser, I guess, for the next decade and what it has in store for us. Smart meters has been a discussion, I know you have a quibble uh, about, you know, the ones that have been installed and this one seems to be a smarter smart meter. Solar power cells that are sort of more active, uh, I mean, carbon-free energy sources, uh, more changes on the market regulator side, real demand response systems, uh, other sort of consumer plays. What, what, what do you see emerging in the next decade and how far can we get given, given the very real policy challenges that everybody about Texas has? And I'm assuming even the Europeans have some challenges and I don't exactly know you know, various Asian uh, national markets. But I'm assuming it's an area with tricky uh, conditions for innovation. What can we expect? You know, in so many other fields, you know, AI is going to transform everything. But, you know, in this particular field, like you pointed out, governments have set in place all these structures that either have to sort of be abolished or carefully tweaked. In order for innovation to be let loose, so what what is realistic in a ten years? I, I think you know
1: in the ten to fifteen year time frame, I can expect uh, the one biggest thing is that we are going to see consumers have a much bigger role in the entire system. I mean, right now I have eight kilowatts of solar on my roof and two, um, you know, twelve and a half. Uh, kilowatt hour uh, Tesla power walls in my garage. I don't use any energy from the electric company at all. I produce that's in Berkeley, California, which is not necessarily the sunniest place in the world. I, I don't I don't um, take in energy any energy from the electric company. I, I put more out to the grid than I take in. Now that was a very recent development based upon uh, reduction of costs. A reduction and some some state subsidies and other things that supported it, but there's going to be a point in time where it's going to be cost effective everywhere, uh, at least in this country, in the U.S. and and in many other latitudes and jurisdictions, where it's going to be extremely cost effective for people to put in their own systems, just like they'd have, just like you know, the advent and and penetration of air conditioners across the U.S. went from, you know, zero to, you know, nearly 80, 90 percent now, even in the northern climes. Uh, you're going to see...
0: The enabler of that, John, is it a state level or federal level? I mean, do you have any hopes that the Biden administration should, uh, you know, they have their green deal and the green plans? Is it going to be a federal level uh, regulation or is it a mixture of state and federal or, or is it, it just... all? Pressures from startups and consumers that is going to... It, it,
1: it's, it's, it's going to be a mixture of, of federal and state. I mean, you're getting the pressure from consumers and consumers are driving it, ultimately. Cons, cons, consumers are demanding it more and more. You can see it with the advent of rooftop solar um, as consumers demand more and more uh, access to, uh, to be able to use rooftop solar. But you're going to see states... Um, that want to provide services to their, 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 uh, their citizens in the states. But I think there's a big role for the federal government to play as well. And one of the biggest roles for the federal government is to ensure that the wholesale grid, that is the grid you know, outside of the local distribution areas, um, can be opened and have full access to consumers and to consumer resources. And uh, an order just came out of FERC, Order 2222, that basically stated that that should be and and will be the case. So I was very encouraged by that order. I think it was one of the most significant orders that FERC has ever issued. And what it in essence says is that a consumer like myself with rooftop solar and storage has a right, again, talking about the right to self-generate, has a right to access to that full that wholesale market, and FERC will help facilitate that access by consumers. So if you can facilitate that access, what that means to me is, then I can utilize my resources in my my home or my business to provide services for myself, but also to provide services out to the grid and use that to then compensate me back to lower the cost of uh, acquiring those services in the first place, so it's going to drive down costs further by allowing those services to be utilized more widely beyond the individual consumer
0: premises. Is it easier to run FERC now than it was from 2009 to 2013 when you ran it? I know that famously, you know, your your order 1000, you tried and somewhat succeeded, right, in establishing federal transmission competition in 2013 but 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 some states still managed to toward it and 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 sort of were protecting their their state utilities for various reasons what has happened in these 7 years that that now makes this new order and so is it just consumers that are gradually like starting to just put consumer you know put solar on their rooftops and then eventually the argument just sort of sleep, you know seeps in that this is makes making more sense or has something uh, else
1: I think it's a gradual recognition on both sides of the political aisle that markets and consumer choice are absolutely necessary and can be necessary not only to drive down consumer prices and provide consumers with services that they demand, but also are necessary and useful in driving down carbon and allowing us to meet our environmental goals as well. And that's largely because the resources that are becoming the cheapest are the ones that are the low-carbon, no-carbon resources. So ultimately, because we have uh, wind and solar and, and local solar and also uh, distributed Uh, storage as well, all those combined, becoming cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, it's easier now for individual consumers to meet their economic goals as well as their environmental goals and for us collectively to do that as well. So ideally I would hope that it is becoming easier for FERC to start moving forward with this order 2222 came out of a a, a chair who was appointed by the Trump administration a Republican uh, who uh, used to uh, be a staffer to Mitch McConnell uh, you know uh, Neil Chatterjee I think he did a wonderful job as chair um, and I would hope that under the Biden administration carrying on with uh, you know an, an, a new chair a Democratic uh Chair appointed by uh, President Biden, um, that um, you know what I what I initially did with competition and what was carried on um, the seven years subsequent to me, hopefully will continue to not only be carried on but accelerated, and I think. I think what you'll see with the Biden administration is an acceleration of what you've seen in the past. I think it's going to happen quicker, and I think it's going to be facilitated more by the administration because it will not only be FERC, as I understand it, by what the Biden administration is, is intending to do, but they intend to have, you know, cross-agency uh, collaboration and focus and coordination on Climate issues. In fact, they're going to put an entity uh, within the White House, a person within the White House, who will be responsible for uh, coordinating climate issues across all agencies. So when you start talking about not only FERC but putting together, you know, the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, Department of Agriculture, uh, Department of Interior, uh, Commerce, uh, SEC, you know, all these agencies uh, focused on, uh, you know, a goal of uh, reducing uh, carbon and, uh, and, and climate change, then ultimately uh, you have a tremendous amount uh, of power there that can be utilized in concert with and in conjunction with the states and with consumers to accelerate this whole process. So um, I'm looking forward to that process uh, being accelerated under this new administration.
0: John, my last question for you is, this is a complicated field. How do you personally stay up to date on everything that happens? And what do you recommend to my listeners if they are interested in energy transition or energy innovation? Where where are the places, where are the blogs, or where are the, I mean, you know... Uh, is there going to be do you, do you predict there's going to be like one-stop uh, shop websites in the uh, you know on the energy side in the Biden administration or do, does one have to kind of track every every ministry and department to sort of to find these uh, these sources of information where 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 do we go?
1: Well, you know what I do a little trick I do is I just go into Google searches and um, and do. Um, uh, tags for things that I want to have sent to me on a, on a daily basis. So, you know, I look at uh, transmission, I look at distributed generation, I look at net metering, I look at storage, uh, I look at uh, solar PV. So I've got a number of, of tagged keywords that come back to me every day. And I just look at those uh, to see, um, you know, what the latest news is on the things that I have an interest in. And I think that's what you have to do. You have to pick which areas of the whole energy field and the energy field is very large. You have to pick which areas of it that you have the highest level of interest in, and then, you know, go seek out those publications or, uh, or again, uh, uh, do tag Google searches um, that will report back to you, um, you know, feedback to you on a, on a daily basis. uh, The searches uh, the found searches of, of 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 the things you're looking for, and just you have to keep up on it. I mean, that's the first thing I do in the morning is read those, and uh, from that, uh, you know, uh, sometimes I'll go down the rabbit hole and things that I find uh, to dig dig in further. But you just have to be uh, persistent at it and diligent at it and and keep working at it.
0: Sounds good. It has been fascinating to learn, and you have this. Kind of span of experience that, you know, makes it sound almost uh, simple to understand, but it was a, a journey for you. And one regret I have is I remember us in the prep, we were talking about a, a very early experience you had. And I wanted to super briefly touch on that because I asked you something that there, uh, not everyone knows about you. And you told me you are an expert on the chemi- uh, chemical ammonium percolate. I <laughs> thought that was a pretty interesting little anecdote that maybe we can just end on. So, you actually entered this field because you became an expert on an, essentially on an explosive, but the, it wasn't really recognized as such. Co- what, what,
1: what was the- that, that? That's correct. I, I, I worked on a case for a number of years on a um, um, tragic event in Henderson, Nevada. There was a chemical plant called Pepcon, uh, Pacific Engineering and Construction Company in Nevada, that uh, made this chemical that was classified as an oxidizer that is used to make solid rocket motor, um, uh, make the motors in solid rockets. Um, and ultimately, um, th- there was a huge explosion at this chemical plant. Uh, two people actually tragically died. Um, but, um, I became sort of the technical expert because again, I was the attorney who knew most about, um, Physics and chemistry, and as a result, uh, just focused in on that. And it really taught me how to, you know, focus in on problems and uh, ensure that if you're going to solve a problem, learn everything you can about it before you do. Uh,
0: Because, you know, so fascinating to end with this. I was going to actually ask it to you. I usually ask this early, but it's a wonderful way to end too, because I think when, you know, uh, people try to get Deep into a topic. The fact that, you know, in your story here, you, you know, it was a serious issue and you went deep, but you had to have the technical preparation for it in order to go that deep. but, But then once you had gone that deep, it became the fodder for an entire career for you. Right. I just thought that was so fascinating. Well, thank you so much, John. This has been a, a wonderful talk, and I hope that people learned a little about the future of the grid. Uh, it was a, a pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you, Trond. I appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. You have just listened to episode 82 of the Futurized podcast with host Trond futurist and author. The topic was the future of grid energy innovation. Our guest was John Wellinghoff, CEO of Grid Policy and former chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. In this conversation, we talked about the transdisciplinary mindset needed to understand energy innovation, and we discussed the policy regulation impasse. We talked about the downside of monopolistic utilities at both distribution, transmission, and generation levels. We discussed sustainable energy systems and distributed energy resource systems. We talked about the disruptive forces, particularly the policy barriers and opportunities, and the regulatory tools available in the U.S. and abroad. We discussed the Texas case of free utility competition, And we talked about exciting startups in this space, including SmartWires and Whisker Labs, the impact of innovation on the policy mix and the outcome. And lastly, we discuss the next decade. My takeaway is that grid energy innovation seems to finally be underway. And with that, we can see transformation across the grid and consumers can finally get involved. However, energy still consists of a myriad of separate markets, both nationally and regionally, and that total picture is not likely to change anytime soon. Once it does, we are looking at opportunities that are very hard to fathom and implications for how we live and how our planet responds. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurized.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 70 The Future of Clean Tech. Episode 12, Future of Nuclear Waste, or Episode 15, The Future of Pre-Seed Investing. Episode 20, The Future of Engines. Episode 21, Energy Storage. Episode 63, Hunting for Emerging Tech. Episode 76, Risk and Resilience, or Episode 38, Disaster Risk Management. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.